Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Fiction, science fiction, horror, fantasy, crime. LGBT Thriller. You have now entered the House of Mystery. With your hosts, Eric Shapiro, David North Martino, John Copenhaver, and Al Warren. Heard on KCB. 106.5 FM Los Angeles. 102.3 FM Riverside. And 105.0 AM Palm Springs. And, um, and joining us to talk about uh, this case is the author of a new book. And um, she's been on the show before. And uh, the, the book is Velvely <laughs> Dick. Dickinson, and uh, the, the author is Barbara Casey. Thank you for coming back. Oh, you're quite welcome. I'm glad to be here. It's funny. I get the name wrong after I practice it. <laughs> well, well that... it's an unusual name. It really is. Uh, I, uh, as much as I have read about and research and all, I still stumble, so... Don't feel bad. It's, it isn't your common variety, Mary. <laughs> no, I know, and that's kind of, um, you know, that, that really draws you to it. It did me. I mean, right away it was like, Velvely, wow. I, I've never never come across that before. Um, so what drew you to it? Is that is the name, too, got you into writing this book? Well, actually, uh, when I was on your show before, we talked about uh, my book about Catherine Kelly, uh, who was uh, Machine Gun Kelly's wife and also the brains behind all of their uh, uh, illegal activities. And when I was doing research on Catherine, uh, I came across Belle Lee because they were both uh, in the same prison at the same time. And so I just made a mental note that once I finished my book on Catherine Kelly, I wanted to go back and, and check into Belle Lee to find out what her story was. And that took me on this journey because it was difficult. Like it, like Catherine, there was just so very little known about Beverly, and yet she played this huge, major part in American history during World War II. So that I, it was quite a story. It was a quite a, a, a quite a journey. Yeah, I mean, um, so she, you know, in in the short of it, she was actually a a spy for the Japanese government during the, um, you know, the war times, I guess. Um, she, she was an American. She was uh, born in Sacramento, California. Her parents were both uh, uh, born in the United States, so they were of German descent, but they were all Americans. But she, she was an American woman, and yet she was spying for the Japanese imperial government. Uh, wow. Against the United States, yeah. yeah it, it that, was. That's crazy. Um, and, and just for the young listeners, you got to realize that um, back in those days, 
uh, communication was not real simple. It's not like um, you could just call someone or even on a regular phone, even a landline, uh, never mind cell phones and computers. So um, how was someone like her, All-American, um, indoctrinated, or how did she get into that? You know, it's, there seems to have been some sort of interest, even as a young child, because when she was in high school, she wanted to learn the language of Japanese. She studied it. And she she was seemed to be drawn to that culture, and then as a, a young woman, uh, she graduated from Stanford, and she uh, her the work that she went into uh, took her into close proximity uh, with the Japanese, the Imperial Valley there in California, and uh, eventually uh, it, she was married and divorced twice, which was very unusual for a woman at, at during that time. So she was sort of a free spirit already, but even but like but as a young girl, she was interested in Japanese culture and she tried to learn everything about it. Uh, when she married the third time, uh, her husband had a, a food brokerage company located in the Imperial Valley, so that exposed her to all kinds of of the uh, Japanese culture and. The different societies uh, she joined and, and and insisted that her husband join and and she started even dressing in authentic uh, Japanese attire. She just she really did love the Japanese culture. Wow! Now now Valvoli was uh, known as what they call the doll woman. Um, the doll woman. Yeah. Right. How how did that come about? Like, wh- why did she get that uh, nickname? She, uh, at the age of 41, started collecting dolls. Uh, she and her husband had no children, and uh, by uh, by then, his company had gone uh, broke, and so they had moved to New York, and to New York City. And she uh, started collecting dolls, uh, rare and antique, and foreign dolls primarily. And uh, she had this real genius for marketing. Uh, she started uh, selling dolls uh, to uh, people who were maybe searching for a specific antique doll, and she started writing articles and journals that uh, focused on doll collecting. Uh, and then eventually she uh, opened her own doll shop on Madison Avenue. So she became an well-known throughout not only the United States but uh, in Europe because she uh, was constantly dealing with other doll collectors around the world uh, acquiring dolls for her own shop. So that's how she became known as the doll woman. But then it took a bitter turn because eventually she started using her knowledge of dolls and uh, doll collecting uh, to promote her spy, her spying yeah. effort. What yeah. kind of dolls was she collecting, and what kind of doll shop? Like, what what kind of dolls were they? Like um, specialty, well, prim- uh, primarily antique and rare dolls. Uh, back then, and even today, doll collecting is one of the biggest hobbies uh, that there that that there is. But back then, especially, uh, it was the adult we- the women who collected dolls. Some men, but very few children. It was it was mostly adults that were interested in doll collecting. So Belle had a, a, an enormous collection of, of rare dolls and dolls from all from she she boasted from every country uh, in the world, and also uh, antique dolls. In fact, um, she would she would go and and uh, to different uh, conferences and talk as an expert on dolls and one of her dolls was uh, from the 1700s a wooden doll and it was even uh, pictured in the New York Times so she she was really well known throughout the, uh, the United States and the world as as uh, expert on dolls and doll collecting but is but in particular the rare and antique and the foreign dolls and her, in her shop, she had a beautiful shop. It was right on Madison Avenue, uh, a big storefront window. And uh, uh, her dolls, 
the least expensive dolls were around fifteen dollars, but the the rare ones and the the beautiful antique ones would maybe uh, she could get thousands of dollars for one doll. So she she really uh, had a business there, and and this is so unusual because you have to remember it was pre-war and war, so people just didn't have that kind of money. Yeah, because uh, what this is the 1930s. This was early, uh, late 1930s and early 1940s, right before Pearl Harbor, right before Pearl Harbor. Wow, and that's a lot of money back then, even fifteen dollars. Oh, it is. You know. Yeah, yeah, it is. And, and but her clients, she she catered to the wealthy, and uh, uh, movie stars, uh, politicians. Uh, uh, just and just people who had uh, who were who were wealthy in spite of the uh, threat of war and that kind of thing. So she she had a, a high clientele. She wow. did a lot of traveling back and forth between New York and California, and that was why she she built up a lot of uh, 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 clients within Hollywood there. So she hmm. knew what she was doing. She must have been in 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 good standing then, and she must have had a good amount of uh, of money to be able to just travel and open a shop and do all this doll trading. She she had to have been she had to have been making uh, good money on her sales. Her husband uh, took care of the bookkeeping, and her brother, uh, who was the only sibling she had, he was eleven years younger than she. He would. Uh, in the shop when she was traveling, doing all this traveling. And, of course, once uh, the war started, it, travel was almost impossible for the civilians. Uh, everything was uh, reserved for the military, and yet she, Velva Lee and her husband, Lee, could travel back and forth at will. And uh, this, remember when the, in the society pages they used to always talk about which Hollywood star was uh, visiting where, what they were doing, where they were traveling and all. That's how they treated Velva Lee. She would go on these trips to uh, the West Coast, and it would be written up in the newspapers and the society pages. That was uh, how well-known she was. Kind of like a celebrity, really. Yes, she was. She was. Wow. Uh, So now she actually started um, using these dolls... Uh, in her um, in her espionage, we say in her spying. Um, how did she How did she do that? Like, well, uh, it was the earliest uh, witnessed report that she was perhaps working with the Japanese was when a witness saw a Japanese man dressed in uh, military officer uniform enter her shop and give her a packet. And it was later discovered that that packet had $20,000 in it. This was like two days before the bombing of Pearl Harbor. And um, what Belle was, as I had mentioned earlier, she was a genius at marketing. And one thing that she was very good at was corresponding with all of her clients. She had at this time over 20,000 clients, and she would write to all of them, and they, uh, some, off telling telling them about some of her latest acquisitions and a special doll that she had gotten or whatever, and then they would respond, also corresponding. Uh, sometimes they would want to buy the doll, but but often they felt like they had a friend in her more than anything else. And they would tell her things about their private lives and what was going on. And she would take that information, and she wrote five letters. Uh, in the end, it came came it came out that it, there were five letters that we know of. And she was writing them uh, and using her clients' names. She picked out five different uh, women that she had corresponded with. She threw in some personal information in the letter, but the letter itself was coded in something called an open code, and and then she signed it using the almost the same signature as what uh, the client had used, and used their return address on the envelope, 
and she sent those letters to a woman in Buenos Aires and uh, uh, who was the Japanese contact. That The letters were then supposed to be turned over to the Japanese imperial government. But um, the letters, if they were uh, examined by the Postal Service, they looked uh, innocent enough. They talked about doll collecting and dolls and then that personal information about whatever they were doing. So, But how she got tripped up was the FBI discovered the woman in Buenos Aires, and they had already uh, arrested her. So when the first letter uh, was sent to Buenos Aires, there was no one there to receive it, and so it was returned. And it because it had the return address of one of her clients, it went to that client. And she when she opened it and read it, it just didn't make sense to her. She read she understood some of the information because it was her personal information but the other things just didn't make sense and what is because it was coded it was uh, Lee was using words like balloons and nets fishing nets and things like that uh, to describe battleships and where they were and and where they were being repaired and where they were being discharged and so forth and so this uh, the first letter uh, known as the Springfield letter, uh, got uh, turned over to the FBI, and that started the investigation. Hmm. Now, now, do we know how she got involved w- with this scheme? Sort of like, like what? Do we know what drew her in? As in, um, not so much that like who contacted her, who got her in initially, but do you know why she wanted to do this? You know, that's such a good question because um, every book that I've written, and like Catherine Kelly, who, who knows what drove her except it was just the thrill of, of excitement of, of, of doing things that were uh, illegal. And with Selva Lee, I think most people come down on the fact that she was greedy. But, but I, I go back to when she was a young girl and when she wanted to study the Japanese language and how she enjoyed dressing up in the Japanese uh, attire um, I, I'm not sure I'm just not but it, in her defense at during this time her husband Lee was uh, very ill uh, he was, he had had several heart attacks and he had something called Bright's disease which uh, weakened his heart, and yet he was still doing this traveling with her. And but the medical bills were piling up. He needed uh, nursing care around the clock. She had uh, help at the home to uh, 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 a maid, and then she was trying to run her her shop. But and then doing all that traveling still. So you know she had tremendous uh, bills, and so a lot of people think that perhaps it was because of that that. She decided to uh, become a spy. Um, she, yeah, she, I, I, uh, I just, I just find it, it's strange because, like, if I'm, in general, you know, if 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 someone's just in need of of making more money to pay more bills, that's not the first thing you think of. I mean, no, it isn't. <laughs> and I think, it, and the other reason too, she was in a position where she was an easy contact for the Japanese. Because she was familiar with the language and because she was so familiar with their culture and because she belonged to all these organizations, societies that were for the Japanese, uh, she was easy to approach. She entertained uh, many of the ranking military officers in her home and it's just she was an easy target and she was a willing target. Wow. Now, what kind of information do, were was she actually passing on to the Japanese? What, what exactly was she giving them? Well, the uh, the the most important information uh, came right after the Pearl Harbor bombing, and the, uh, the Japanese seemed to be particularly interested in how much damage had been done, which battleships were. Uh, being repaired and where, and where were they being decommissioned? 
being uh, co uh, commissioned, recommissioned, and she had all that information. She would, uh, she was still traveling to, to the West Coast, and she was invited by many of the wives of our military officers, the naval officers, and they would have a little tea party and they'd discuss dolls and over tea. But while she was there, because they were the wives of naval uh, officers, they, she would innocently ask them about uh, what was going on and which ships were there and how fascinating it was and, you know, just into the normal conversation. And so she started, she got a lot of information that way. And then the other way was there was this realtor that she used whenever she'd go to California, and he would just uh, uh, show for her to the different uh, uh, seaports where the ships were actually being uh, repaired. And so she could visually see what was being done. And she would talk to the local people in the different uh, little shops and all, and the realtor, and no one even suspected, though, that she was a spy. Here's this little woman who collected dolls and, you know, just interested in what was going on in world events, and yet she was collecting information, and that was the information that she was passing on to the Japanese in those coded letters. Wow. Uh, and so, so that returned letter uh, being turned into the FBI is what got their attention about that got, her. Right. That got their attention, and then within just a short period of time, four more letters were uh, were returned also and turned into the FBI. So they knew that there was some. They they started their their uh, formal investigation, and they uh, the one thing that these five women had in common that had turned in the letters was that uh, was Velva Lee. They had at some point, at some time, had all corresponded with Velva Lee, and so she she had their uh, signatures and and information about their private lives, and so from that point on, they started following Velva Lee and surveilling her, and they did this for well over a year uh, because they wanted to make sure that 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 they knew what they were doing, that they were correct in their assumptions. Um, yeah. So so they, they, they arrested her finally. Yeah, but what was so funny in their surveillance, here are these FBI agents, and, and probably, you know, they might be a little different today, but not much, but they'd be all dressed up in their suits, and, and they'd go into her doll shop, like pretending like they were shopping for dolls, and, and they would ask her questions, and, of course, that was a dead giveaway because their questions weren't, weren't <laughs> intelligent <laughs> and she knew right away well you know these aren't dog collectors why are they hanging around in my shop and but but still they persisted in, in gathering information and, and intel on her uh, but um, uh, Velva Lee was uh, she was less than five feet tall and she weighed less than 100 pounds she was just a little woman and she started suspecting that she was being followed and uh, she started to panic and she considered a lot of different things like moving to Canada or moving to Mexico or she couldn't understand why her sources weren't sending her more money. Uh, this was a constant uh, theme in, in some of her correspondence and um, eventually she decided she needed to to get out of there because it, that she felt like that she was going to be arrested. And so she went to her bank and uh, where, to where she had uh, a safety deposit box. And when she went into the room with, and unlocked her safety deposit box, two FBI agents had followed her and they immediately arrested her. Well, here's this little bitty woman. She threw the safety deposit box at them and started kicking and screaming and clawing and batting them over the head with her pocketbook. And, I mean, she was a handful. And it took both of those men to physically carry her out of that bank and in front of all the <laughs> the, the bank personnel and the, and the people that had gone to do their business. And 
and here they came, but that was how she was arrested. And she kept she kept denying that it was, that she had done nothing wrong, and she kept with that story throughout. She never did admit that she had ever done anything wrong. Wow. But, now, do you think her family was involved? Like her husband traveled with her all the time. So, do you think he knew about what was going on? He was bound to have known, but he was so ill at that time that there really wasn't anything he could do. And she was—I think she was just a real strong-willed woman and. She had decided that that was the the direction she was going to take, and uh, I have to give her credit. She she stayed with that husband, and even though it was draining everything that they had worked for uh, financially, she stayed with him, even though she had already been divorced twice. So I think she must have, have felt some love for him, but she just went about about it the wrong way to try to to fix their financial problems. I think he probably knew, and, and I'm sure her brother knew. Uh, Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. By then, her parents were dead, so uh, it was just uh, the three of them. But uh, that her, her brother did try to help her, and he got into trouble for it. Um, mm. This was after, after the trial and after she had been sentenced to prison. But she was sentenced, or she was uh, charged with espionage, which was the death penalty by electric chair, and also for... Uh, 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 violating the wartime censorship laws and the lawyer who was the prosecutor was a man uh, who had a 98% conviction record and (laughs) and, (laughs) yeah it is pretty good McNally and he had even uh, convicted a woman who had taught her parrot to say Heil Hitler and <laughs> and she had her citizenship uh, re- revoked because of that so he, he was a tough guy he really was and he that's who Belle Lee was facing and uh, as they got deeper into the what evidence they had what all the all the things that the FBI had come up with and the um, uh cryptologist who had uh, deciphered the letters and all of that, he was afraid that because Belle Lee kept insisting that it was her husband 
who had been the spy, not her, that she didn't know anything about it, that she had only uh, typed the letters as he had dictated, but he, she didn't know what they meant. He was afraid, and because she was a woman, uh, that uh, the evidence was too circumstantial and that he not, might not be able to get a guilty plea for the uh, espionage. So they worked a plea deal, and they dropped the charge of espionage but kept the violation of the censorship laws, which that took off the death penalty. But uh, at the end of the trial, the judge wasn't believing her story, that it was her husband, and he had no sympathy, and he gave her the maximum sentence, which was 10 years in uh, Alderson Women's Correctional Institution and $10,000 fine. Wow. And um, so, wow. So now she served out her time in prison then, and she got out? Well, not really. Uh, oh. It was... It, Belle Lee was, she just was such a, she had so many good things going for her, and it was just such a shame that she uh, took such a dark turn in her life, because she could have accomplished so much with, with all of her ability, and her, her uh, she was an intelligent woman, but about three, three years after she had been serving her time, uh, Eunice, Kennedy, who was the sister of our, of our president, John Kennedy, yeah. uh, she was uh, uh, she went to Alderson, where Velvely was was serving out her sentence. Uh, she was doing some research on on how to help women who had been in prison adjust to life after they were released. And Eunice was a she was another real strong woman, and she believed that most of the women who had been sentenced to prison were there because of a man in their life, either their husband or a boyfriend or or a abusive father or something like that. And for some reason, now this is during the time when when Belle was at Alderson, there was of course Catherine Kelly was there, uh, Axis Sally, Tokyo Rose, they were all serving time at this same women's prison. And for some reason, Eunice took a special interest in Belle Valley. And um, she started uh, working with her, and they became quite good friends, apparently. And uh, Belle Valley was released from prison three years early. Uh, there was no announcement or anything like that. She was just quietly released. And I, I feel that Eunice probably had something to do with that. Uh, Beverly returned to New York where she had a job waiting for her. Again, this was because of Eunice. And she worked uh, through the Catholic Church for a while and then uh, within a short time became Eunice, Eunice's uh, private secretary. Uh, well, that would be a good job. Wouldn't be too bad, would it? No. She... Beverly uh, attended the uh, wedding of Eunice and Sergeant Shriver, and she was in the reception line. And, I mean, she was like part of the family there for a while. Uh, then, then she just disappeared. Um, after that, she, she just sort of disappeared. It was like she just didn't want anyone to know about her past or what she was doing now. Um, wow. Just, what do you think happened to her? Like, where did you think she went? I think she probably stayed in New York uh, because uh, that was her last home. Um, her doll shop, her brother sold her dolls and her doll shop when she was still in prison. So she didn't have that anymore. And I'm really not sure how she how she made her money because uh, uh, unless she was able to save quite a bit from what Eunice paid her uh, I think maybe eventually uh, it, there were rumors that people would still see her dressed in Japanese attire visiting the Japanese society that she was had been a member of for all those years uh, now, but that was never substantiated. But still, it makes you wonder. She just 
nobody just all everything about her just seems to have just disappeared. Um, huh. There, some people. There, the only record I was able to find was uh, a mention that she died in 1980, and she uh, she probably would have been about 87 then. Uh, but but even after that, people were still reporting that they had seen this elderly Japanese elderly American woman dressed in Japanese attire attending that uh, Nippon Club in New York. So. It's just hard to say. I know her parents were buried in uh, California in a in a old cemetery there, but she's not buried there. Uh, I checked all the records and uh, I checked the the plots and all, but she isn't there. So her brother wound up in Pennsylvania. He finally got married, and uh, so it's just hard to to know what happened to Belva Lee. And and so did the his her brother just lose contact with her or did he like why his brother her brother didn't know anything? I think uh, he while she was in prison he several times tried to uh, give her these notebooks that she was re- asking him to to give her and I believe that those notebooks probably had uh, uh, the difference. Japanese contacts that she had been working with, and she was going to try to uh, contact them and get some money from them. Uh, but but there was always an FBI agent present whenever he was visiting his sister, and so he'd been warned several times not to try to touch her, not try to give her any information, and when he kept trying to do it, he, he wound up going to, to jail for 10 days, and the judge... Uh, told him that he could no longer visit Belvalee, but he rescinded that after he served his 10, his ten days and let him visit her, but uh, I think by then he was he realized that there was nothing he could do for her anymore, That uh, and he went on his own and uh, apparently met someone and got married and moved to Pennsylvania. So I think he just moved on with his life, and I know that Belvalee wrote to him several times and and he did uh, write back, but mostly she was asking him for to bring her things of maybe books or or personal things. But I don't think they uh, kept that close contact they had had uh, when she like when she had the doll shop. Hmm. Now now I see after she um, got out of prison, she actually changed her name to Catherine Dickerson. She did. She did. And again, that was just another indication that she was trying to, uh, to. She just didn't want people to know what she had done. Not that she can blame her. You don't want people to know you've been in prison for spying. Right. And so she, she yeah, she she changed her name and uh, and tried to move on. And certainly, she had a, a good step forward by being Eunice's private secretary. And but I'm not sure why that. Uh, uh, why Eunice, uh, if she just let her go after so long, or, or Beverly just moved on. I just don't know. Beverly did make one more contact with Eunice, um, and she would have been about in her about 70 at this time. And they were having the World's Fair there in New York, and she, and she was uh, wanting to work at the World's Fair. But then uh, they, she found out that they were doing background checks on all the people that they were going to hire. And she contacted Eunice to find out if they, if she could do something where they wouldn't do a background check on her. She was afraid they'd find out that she'd been in prison. And uh, there is no uh, correspondence from uh, Eunice about that, whether she helped or not. Uh, that was the last contact they had. Wow. Quite a story. Yeah. Um, it is. It is. The amazing thing is that uh, it's been hidden for so long. Um, you know, I had to go through the FBI vault and, and the Freedom of Information Act to, to get what information I could from the FBI. But it was just, at the time, it was an enormous story. I mean, it was all over the world. Newspapers all over the world were, were following this story, what was going to happen to Beverly Dickinson, the doll woman spy. And... Uh, 
because she just had so many contacts from her days of running the doll shop. Wow. And and wh- now what happened to her husband that was ill? Did he just die when she was he, in prison? He, he died uh, before uh, she was uh, arrested. So that was why she felt she could say that it, he was the spy, not her. He died a few months before she was arrested. But wow. there were people that refuted that her story, her that he was the spy, because she claimed that that packet of $20,000, you know, that the, the uh, Japanese military officer gave her, uh, she had said that he had given it to her husband and that he had hidden it under the mattress. And But he had a full-time nurse and a full-time maid, and they both denied that there was ever any money under the mattress and that he physically wasn't able to go to the shop to to meet anyone at that time. So, uh, you know, her story, she, she tried to blame her husband because he was dead and couldn't defend himself, but yet uh, many people just never did believe it. And so now she was a pretty smart woman, right? Didn't she go for, for oh. a degree at Stanford? She did, and also that was where Eunice Kennedy uh, went to college. Uh, so they shared that. Beverly uh, was by then quite a bit older than Eunice. I think she was about maybe 20 years older than Eunice. But still, they, they both attended Stanford, and they both, Beverly, uh, when she first got out of college, was interested in, in working with in social welfare, and especially helping the Japanese. and. Of course, Eunice Kennedy was always involved in in social welfare, not necessarily the Japanese, but uh, the women, uh, helping them improve their lives and that kind of thing. So they had that thing uh, in common. But um, yes, they'll believe for at that age, at that time, for her to go to uh, college and graduate. And of course, with they'll believe, there's always a uh, a fly in the ointment because <laughs> even when she she supposedly graduated from Stanford, uh, she didn't receive, actually receive her degree uh, for 11 years. And the reason is because supposedly she failed to return some library books she had checked out. So they didn't give her her degree until she returned those books. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well. <laughs> Yes, she was intelligent. <laughs> yeah, I guess. Now, and I noticed her name, her 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 um, name before marriage, uh, uh, Valvely uh, Malvina Blucher. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. W- wow. Where was that from? Like, what do we know? What that name? That's German. Uh, that was the German descent. Both her father and her mother uh, had uh, parents from from Germany even though they they were born in the United States. But, yeah, that was, some some uh, call it Bluhar. They pronounce it Bluhar, but uh, most people will say it's Blucher. And uh, her father was, uh, I think, a car mechanic. In fact, that was how he died. He was crushed in a car wheel when he was 61 years old. And her mother uh, was from Kentucky, uh, rural background, uh, and she died at also very young at 46 of uh, tuberculosis. So, uh, but but the family on both sides had uh, German ancestors, and that's where that name comes from. So that must have really devastated what family was around, or even the neighbors and the friends or people she knew. Oh my goodness! Yeah, and you know it's it's uh, it's typical because. Uh, as long as Valvoli was at her peak, you know, um, speaking all around the country and uh, giving lectures and and uh, being the expert on to, to be called about any question about a doll, she people really respected her and and they paid her money for everything that she was doing. But of course, once once she went to prison, all of that changed and. Neighbors started talking about, well, she really wasn't an attractive woman. She was mousy, and she wore brown all the time. And, and uh, you know, they started uh, being very negative toward her at that time. So uh, I think it's just 
part of the human condition to be that way, but uh, I think Eunice apparently saw something good in her, and she really tried to reach out and help her. And I'm wondering if, because Eunice was so adamant about believing most women were in prison because of some male influence. I just wonder if she didn't believe Beverly's story that it was her husband, Lee, who had been the spy and not Beverly, and she felt compassionate toward her because of that. I don't know. Hmm. But she certainly reached out and gave her every opportunity. Wow. Um, now, did she have any children with any of these husbands? No, no children. No, And... Uh, um, which might have been a reason why she started all collecting to begin with. But uh, uh, the story goes that a friend gave her two Filipino dolls. Uh, uh, They were folk dolls, and when she was 41 years old, and she was just so taken by the dolls, that uh, those two dolls, that she decided to start her own collection. And that's what she did. Wow. That's, yeah. Yeah. And I was going to say, you know, when she got fined that 10,000 in 10 years, how did she come up with the 10 grand, or do you think she had it? Well, she did in the safety deposit box. uh, I think they, uh, I think there was over close to $40,000 in there, and uh, plus a lot of uh, bonds and certificates and all, and all of them could be traced back to the Imperial Japanese government. I mean, it was just, uh, the evidence was there. And uh, the IRS immediately stepped in and uh, took all of the money that she had, uh, saying that she owed it in back taxes. And so from somewhere, that $10,000 came out of that, I suppose. But uh, she, she was left penniless by the time it was over with. Wow. Just... Uh crazy um <laughs> what a what a life um the, the trial you know here the fbi agents had been following her for for over a year before they decided to go ahead and arrest her and the and the trial took seven months and through the the entire thing uh beverly never uh admitted that she had done anything wrong and she through the whole thing she just Every time she could cause a scene, she did. She was just a little fighter. That's all there was to it. She just, uh, she just refused to accept that she had been caught. And in fact, she meant she mentioned and and to someone that she just never thought she would be caught. And that that in itself was uh, was revealing that she was guilty. But. Um, Wow. And I'm just seeing that the buying power of $40,000 in 1940, oh, is, my that would be worth $700,000 today. Well, it was a lot. And, yeah. at, at the time, and no telling how much she had uh, already spent, because she was considered the highest paid American spy during the World War II. And it's interesting because um, of uh, all the during that time, you know, especially after the Pearl Harbor, the uh, fear and paranoia of the Japanese was already starting to boil. But when Pearl Harbor happened, it was it, it and the internment camps, uh, all of that. It was just the paranoia was just widespread, and. There was only one person known to have successfully passed military information to the Imperial Japanese government following Pearl Harbor, and that was Belle Isn't that amazing? Yeah. I thought, yeah. I, you know, I, I think it's a, a crazy, crazy. <laughs> it's hard to believe that one woman could have done so much, but... But she did, and the information uh, that she passed on, uh, if it had gotten into the Japanese hands, it could have done a great deal more damage. What they don't know is, was she able to pass on any information before those five letters? 
they say they don't think so. They think that was it. But but who knows? Because they, she was still getting paid uh, before Pearl Harbor. So she had to get her, uh, I don't know, it's, it's, it's interesting. Yeah. Wow. That's quite a story. Um, so now, uh, have you got a, a website or your own personal site that people can go to, or do they have to get the book through Amazon and stores? Well, it's available through Amazon and Barnes and & Noble and, and uh, the, your local favorite store that can be ordered. Uh, I do have a website. I don't sell my books on my website, but my website is uh, com. And I have all of my books listed there with descriptions if anyone's interested. Wow. But the, book, but the books are available, and, uh, and also in uh, Kindle and Nook and uh, hard copy, uh, paperback. So, yeah. Um, now, so what have you got planned next? Are you working on another uh, kind of history crime? or? Well, uh, I was. Uh, my last three books have been nonfiction uh, about women like Beverly and Catherine Kelly and Asada Shakur was, was my most recent one and uh, besides Beverly and so before that I was a novelist and so I turned back to a novel and I'm, I want to get this one out of my system and once I complete this novel that I'm working on now then I'm probably going to go back to nonfiction because uh, I just really enjoy doing the research uh, it, it's hard work but when you discover things that you know no one else has, has has seen and it's going to be such an interesting story, it's, it's hard to turn your back on it. And so that's what my plan is. Well, that sounds good. Uh, and actually, we'll have your book up on our website as well. People can just do one click and pick up the book if they listen to the show. And, uh, and uh, it's fascinating. We'll also put a link to your website for them. And, Thank uh, you. Again, the book, Valvely Dickinson. And our author on board today has been Barbara Casey. Thank you for doing the show. Oh, thanks for having me. To find out more about our show, guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.